0: church uh, our passage this morning comes from colossians chapter 1 verses 24 through 29 now i rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh i am filling up what is lacking in christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which i became a minister according to the stewardship from god that was given to me for you to make the word of god fully known You guys can be seated.
1: Man, I almost end up on a TikTok video a minute ago up here. <laughs> uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up to 1 Colossians. Um, Trey King, thankful for him and his service in the church. He is a, a deacon here uh, at our church and serves faithfully at kids' ministry and different capacities and caring for people, so I'm thankful for him Uh, this morning. Let me uh, me say a a brief prayer um, this morning in response to the word. Father, by your word and through your spirit, we ask that you would both deeply convict us and deeply encourage us today. Would you show us our sin and then show us our Savior? And then what to do in light of the truths in your word? We ask these things, of course, in Christ's name. Amen. Um, as we get ready to study this passage today, th- this is uh, my eighth year in uh, being the pastor here at Lightpoint Church, Stewart's Creek. And so I was reflecting on a lot of these things this week and, um, in regards to this passage. I say this often uh, about being a pastor. It is an awesome burden. Uh, there is this um, awesome burden inexpressible joy that I have in getting to do what I do. Um, And at the same time, pastoring carries many burdens with it. One of those burdens that pastor carries is the burden of criticism. The burden of criticism. There is no shortage of fault finders in the church. And uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll, and, and again, being a pastor carries some level of healthy criticism. We know that. They're not above criticism, but there are no fault finders or shortage of fault finders in the church. And so as I was studying this week, I was thinking about all of the things that uh, I've heard that people have said about me over the course of the years since my, my time here. And this is just some of the things that I've heard. Uh, I'll I'll read a few, and some of my friends helped me with some of these, by the way. Here's a few. Uh, I think he goes to hot spot tanning. Uh, I think he shaves his arms and uses the shake weight. All right, let me dispel all of these, too, by the way. They're not true. Here's a few other ones. He's not qualified. He doesn't even have a seminary degree. He doesn't feed me. He's too loud. His sermons are too long. His sermons are too short. No, I was just kidding about that one. No one's ever said that about me. (laughs) But there's some other ones in here. Uh, He's too deep. He's too shallow. He's too serious. He's too silly. He's too old. He's too young. He's too reformed. He's not reformed enough. He's too political. He's not political enough. I've heard all of these things. I and mean, we faced some heavy, heavy criticism during the pandemic, of course. I can't believe, I can't believe that you canceled church. I can't believe you had church. I can't believe that you had people and you, you, you allowed people to wear masks in your church. I can't believe you didn't make everybody wear masks in your church. I had one this one time, and I can't make this stuff up. This one lady accused me of not being a man of prayer because I refused to pray for her dog from the stage on Sunday. I mean, I, can't, I just can't even make this stuff up. I've heard, yeah, you know, he, I want your job. Uh, you only work one day a week. What's that like? I've heard that one before, of course, too. Um, in my time here. Um, Man, I have been verbally dunked on so many times, people accusing uh, me of things or criticizing my character, trying to discredit my ministry. Uh, But by the grace of God, I sleep well at night. And um, I also take comfort in knowing that I'm not the first pastor to face criticism. Pastor Paul, of course, is... The writer of this book, Letter of Colossians, he knew the occupational hazards of pastoral ministry, and he too was intimately aware of the burden of criticism. If you remember in the church in Colossae, they, uh, the false teachers were spreading a lot of false accusations about Christ those same false teachers were also spreading false accusations about Paul. They were putting question marks around Christ's message, and they were also putting question marks around Christ's messenger. Of course, that was Paul. And he was an easy target, too. After all, he's in prison. Perhaps they were saying things like, if Christ is supreme if he is a sufficient if he is the sovereign king of the universe and his number one boy is paul what's he doing in prison miserable sitting around complaining whining paul's a lawbreaker he's a troublemaker you want to follow that guy doesn't look like he has a very successful ministry to me he's in prison He was an easy, easy target for a lot of the critics. Ministry appeared to be crumbling. And perhaps the false teachers were saying, don't listen to Paul, don't follow Paul. Listen to us and follow us. Causing a lot of confusion in the church over church leadership. So today in verses 24 through 29... Paul defends his ministry by describing his ministry. He defends his ministry by describing his ministry. What's what's good to to see here is these, these, uh, these patterns that are falling through the entire book. If you remember, Paul started out the book giving a defense of Christ. Not that Christ necessarily needed defense, but he's been defending Christ. He's given a bio of Christ. He's given a bio of the person and the work of Christ. Now today, he makes this transition to defend his own ministry, to give his own bio and to give his own, uh, his own resume of his person and his work. He gives this statement about his own ministry ministry. And I want to sum it up like this. I think, and this is what our bottom line is today. I think Paul, uh, we can sum up his ministry statement by, by this. I think Paul is saying, everything that I do is for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. Everything for the sake of the gospel and for the church. Paul is describing his own personal ministry here, and the reason we know that is because it's full of I's. I did this, I do this, I, I, I. So he is describing his personal ministry here. However, there's also a we in this text. We'll get to that in a moment. So this is not just Paul's personal ministry description. This is a we description. So who else is the we? Number one, it's, a, it's my job description. The pastor is called to do this. It's my job description. You can always criticize me according to this job description. Not what you think, but this job description is what I'm called to do. In addition to me, this is not just for a vocational position In the church as minister the word minister here in this text translated in the Greek it means servant doulas is the word I say that because Paul is not just describing his personal ministry he's not just describing pastoral ministry he is describing the ministry of every Christian who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ now this is all of us now let's go into this description for the ministry i think what he does here in this text he shows us two things that he does for the gospel and for the church two things in this text number one he's going to show us suffering for the gospel and for the church and then number two he's going to show us stewarding for the gospel and for the church So let's look at these things in order. The first thing in Paul's ministry, our ministry is suffering for the gospel and for the church. Look again as his opening statement here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I rejoice in In my suffering for your sake. That is a passage that you will never hear from a prosperity preacher. Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes. Even lady speakers like Joyce Meyer and other charlatans all avoid this verse like the COVID. They want you to think that following jesus leads to steak dinners every night promotions and long vacations if you just give a little bit of money and if you just have a little bit more faith you will have great mri results clean ct scans and money for days all the while Their church attendance grows up, just continues to grow. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that message, right? Fills the seats up along with their own fame and their fortune. And to them, it is as if Jesus says to them, upon the sand of prosperity, they will bury their church. And here, with Paul's opening statement, He puts this death nail in prosperity. He says that that your faith actually leads to suffering. Your faith doesn't keep you or avoids suffering. It actually brings you and leads you into suffering. What kind of suffering is Paul talking about? It's very important for our uh, interpretation here. Paul's not talking about the kind of suffering that results from our sin. He's not talking about the kind of suffering that results uh, like financial suffering. When you go out and you spend and we blow all of our money on just useless things and at the end of the month, we can't pay the bills. He's not talking about that kind of suffering. He's not talking about the kind of suffering that you and I experience if we enter into a breakup, a relationship with someone who's not a follower of Christ. And there's heartbreak over it. That's not the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the kind of suffering we experience when we have an unbiblical divorce. He's not talking about suffering that we experience from our disobedience. Not that kind of suffering. He's talking about suffering that we experience from obedience. It's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. Suffering, Christian suffering, is suffering for the cause of Christ. And if you know about Paul, of course he was beaten, left for dead, um, stoned. And I don't mean high, I mean like rocks pelleted at his head. He was shipwrecked. Beaten, all all these things, thrown into prison, of course, because he just wouldn't stop talking about the gospel. Of course, they said, Paul, you can avoid prison time if you just shut up. Just stop talking about Jesus. But his obedience to preach the gospel to the Gentiles earned him a prison sentence over and over again, suffering because he was obedient to the word of God. But he didn't just suffer for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. He even goes on and says, He rejoiced in it. Paul's saying, I experience an inexpressible happiness while suffering. We just can't blow past that. Like, is he is he right in the head? I mean, like, who who actually is happy and takes pleasure in suffering we have to ask ourselves this question now clearly paul is not he's not miserable in prison right he's not posting a victim selfie pray for me it's not what he's doing he has joy he's overflowing with joy and everyone who's watching in the prison probably sees this guy this guy's crazy Paul wasn't a masochist. He's not saying that I enjoyed physical deprivation, like I enjoy beating myself up and all these things uh, like the aesthetics do. That's not what he's saying here. He says the reason that he can rejoice is because he knows that suffering has purpose. Suffering wasn't karma. It wasn't a, a slap in the face. It wasn't even a punishment by God. He knew that Christian suffering for the cause of Christ had great purpose. That purpose, of course, was multifold. He, his, surf, his suffering led to his own sanctification he became more like christ as he suffered and it is many times that we can only experience sanctification when we eat the bread of affliction it is in those times and those spaces that we become more like christ is in the middle of suffering so paul grew in his sanctification in the midst of suffering he also he was strengthening the faith of those around him you imagine the other Christians who were also suffering persecution. And here you have Pastor Paul. He's in the middle of prison and he's rejoicing. So don't you know that probably gave them some encouragement to continue to press on in their own joy? Of course it did. Of course it did. Other people came to faith in Jesus Christ through Paul's rejoicing in suffering. Like don't you think people are like, What's your deal, man? Why are you singing, converted Roman jailer? You know that story. What? What? what, Why are you singing in the middle of prison, Paul? Why? Where does this joy come from? Paul shares the gospel; people get saved. Paul's on his couch. I don't even know if the Roman jailer would have been saved or not. But it is in the middle of prison and suffering. People are coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They're being sanctified. And we also know that Paul said in Romans that he considered the present sufferings of the world nothing compared to future glory. He says, the means worth the end is what he's saying. It's all worth it. All the pain, all the suffering, on the backside of it, it's worth it. It's like childbirth for just a minute. I've heard childbirth is really hard, and told me. Painful, suffering, but oh, when that child enters into the room. The mother, the father, look upon the child rejoicing. The gift of God. The pain, the suffering was worth it. The, the end was worth the means. That's what Paul is teaching here about suffering. Then Paul goes on and adds a statement that we also should pause. He says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You have to hit the brakes here, of course, when you see that. What is he saying? Is he saying that that something was lacking in the atonement of Christ on the cross? Did he not accomplish something on the cross? Is, it, is his, his sacrificing life and death bleeding out? Is there something lacking that? Of course, that's not what he's saying here because one of the last words of Christ on the cross was telesteli. It is finished. He is the propitiation for our sin. He, his, his life and his blood fully satisfied the wrath of God. So so Paul is not saying That the death of Christ on the cross is insufficient. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying in filling up of Christ's afflictions? He is referring to the future suffering, including himself, of all Christians of all time who've been called to suffer just like Christ. In our afflictions... In our suffering, we show the world Christ's suffering. Think about that for just a moment. Again, if there's anything lacking in Christ's suffering on the cross and in his life, like anything's lacking, lacking, it's not continually seen. Like he's gone, he's, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So how does the suffering of Christ continue to be reminded in the world, the world's shown the sufferings of Christ. It's through the suffering of his people. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.10. I think it kind of describes this idea. It says, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. God intends for the suffering of his people, the church, to be presented to the world as a portrait of the sufferings of Christ. That's what he means by that statement. Now, I want to continually try to pull us in to this ministry and not, again, just divorce this of Paul's ministry. If you are a follower of Christ, Jesus Christ has called you into the ministry of suffering for the gospel and for the church. You know how some people say, well, how if God is so good, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people. You ever heard that before? Well, that only happened once, and he volunteered for it. That's your answer. There's your answer. God, through Jesus Christ, has called us to suffer for his name's sake. Look at Philippians 129. For it has been granted to you that you, for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Grant me suffering? This is what you call uncomfortable grace. Sure, now, surely God grants us to believe in him, right? We all love that, don't we? Oh, God, thank you for your grace and believing in you. Granting me to suffer for you? Well, I, we have to pause at that, don't we? Man, it, it, it's all about our mindset of suffering. We will suffer. In the last days, of course, in the book of Daniel and Revelation, in the last days of tribulation, we are told that we will suffer much. Much. Christians will suffer for the gospel in the church. John Piper says, no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown, no suffering, no inheritance. That's the way it is. J.C. Ryle said, a Christianity without a cross is a Christianity without a crown. We will suffer, church, But the hope, again, is that our suffering is not in vain. That in the midst of our suffering, we know, like Paul, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We are becoming more like Christ in the middle of our suffering. We also know that God knows our suffering, right? Doesn't he know our suffering? Look at the cross. He knows suffering. He grows us in our suffering. He's near to us in our suffering, and our suffering for the cause of Christ is for the good of the gospel and the good of the church. Bishop Stephen Neal said this, this one caught my eye, affliction is the manure in which God's servants grow best. (laughs) That's a word that gets your attention, isn't it? I guess the takeaway is don't be so quick to avoid or get out of the manure. I guess that's the (laughs) takeaway there. I say all of that because I want you to know that Jesus Christ, when he calls us, he doesn't call us to a miserable life. That's not what Paul's saying here. He is calling us to a hard and happy life. It is hard, but it is happy. There is suffering, but there is rejoicing in the suffering because this is the ministry that he's called us to do, to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and the church. Let me ask you a question. What have you suffered for the cause of Christ? Truly, what have you, what's actually cost you? For the sake of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever lost a follower or a friend? A family member? Because you follow Jesus for the cause of Christ? Have you ever ever sacrificed any of those things ever before? This is kind of our level of suffering. Have you lost influence at your job you lose a promotion maybe because you said you were not going to compromise and you were not going to work on Sunday when the church was gathered or or I'm turning down the promotion because it's going to cause me to have to bail on my discipleship group you ever suffered or lost anything for the sake of the cause of Christ there Have your kids ever lost a roster spot on their sports team because you refused to play tournament ball on Sunday morning at 9? There is no sacrifice too great for the gospel in the church. No one in future glory will ever look back and say, I wish I hadn't have done that. The end is worth the means, church. Second point here in Paul's ministry, our ministry, is the stewardship for the gospel and for the church. Let's read this in 25 through 28. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known Paul said that he became a minister, servant, according to the stewardship of God. God had made him a minister is what Paul is saying. Paul had given him his ministry, and so he knew that it was all from God. And to fully appreciate that statement, you have to know Paul's Paul's background. You have to know his history, his testimony, Paul didn't train or campaign to become a minister. He didn't go before the church in a vote. He didn't work really hard in school, hoping to one day become a minister of the gospel. That's not Paul's story. In fact, paul, paul I guess Paul before Christ, he really was for the gospel and for the church. He really was. He was trying to kill the gospel and make the church bleed, and he was good at it hunting down Christians, followers of the way. He wanted to extinguish the gospel from the face of the earth and everyone who believed in Jesus. And he did anything that he could do. Of course, and we know that his conversion happened on the road to Damascus while he was going to off some more of those pesky Christians. He had an encounter with Christ. Christ blew him up and blinded him. Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which tells us to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. To attack the church is to attack Jesus. You see, Paul knew that his ministry had been given to him by the grace of God. By the grace of God, everything that he had was by God. Not one atom of glory did Paul take for himself. He knew where to throw down the crown of his ministry at the feet of Christ. He took no credit for anything not his salvation, not his calling, nothing which for you and me is a great lesson that we have to learn. You and I did not apply to be Christians. We never toiled and labored and trained or campaigned to become a follower of Christ. We, like Paul, hated the gospel and we didn't care if the church bled or not. Hostile in mind and hostile in heart, just like Paul, just like everyone else in our born natural position. But by the grace of God, God has called us to be ministers, servants of himself, chosen instruments. Paul was a chosen, called, saved, and commissioned Minister to do what? To be a steward. It was called to the ministry of stewardship. That word stewardship means caretaker or manager. A caretaker or a manager of the master's house, the master's stuff. The steward didn't own anything. They were stewards of everything. This is God's gospel. This is God's church. And he called Paul to steward what God had given him. Last week, we we learned about Christ, that all things are created by him, through him, and they were created for him, for Jesus The lesson for us, of course, here, as we are servants and stewards of Christ, that we are also owners of nothing and stewards of everything. Christians are owners of nothing but stewards of everything money, kids, job, career, houses, cars, owners of nothing. And stewards of everything. See, if you understand that, everything else will just kind of fall into place. You'll fall into the place of how you were created to live in your life. You won't be close fisted when the offering basket is passed around, or so close fisted with your time and your house. Oh, I'm not letting anybody in my house. They'll dirty up my carpets, mark up these walls. No way. It's my dream house. My house, my kingdom. Christians don't say that stuff. Christians say, I'm an owner of nothing, but I'm a steward of everything. Our kids, that's, all, that's always the tough, my kids. My kids, I want my kids to show my glory in the world. I want them to make much of me because they're my kids. I want to make them little mini-me's and I want a helicopter and all these things over my own kids because they're My kids. No, they're God's kids. No one loves your kid better than God. No one loves him, loves your child more than God. And when you understand that, now you can steward your children in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. We are stewards. Paul said he was a steward of the mysteries of God the mysteries of god things that were hidden but now they're revealed this is kind of like the idea of walking into a dark room at your home and you you your stuff's in the room right you know furniture's in there and you got a bed and all dress stuff's in there but you can't see it because the lights are off right but when the lights are turned on then you see everything everything that was already there right you just now can see it. This is what Paul's saying about the mysteries of God here is that these mysteries these are things in the Old Testament that are somewhat concealed and now in Christ in the New Testament are now revealed. Paul is talking about the mystery of the gospel. He is a steward, we are stewards of the mystery of the gospel. Now, what's mysterious about the gospel? A couple of things. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in tents and tabernacles and buildings, right? That was his dwelling place. In the New Testament, now Christ, who is God, dwells in you. That's what he says here. The mystery is Christ in you. That's a mystery, mystery revealed it was always supposed to be that way the lord was always going to be in his people and now here in the gospel of the lord jesus christ it is no longer christ outside of you or god dwelling in a place he's dwelling now in you the mystery of the gospel the other aspect of the mystery of the gospel here is again in the old testament god had always told from the beginning of genesis that this gospel this good news of jesus christ was going to be for all people right Not just the Jews, but it's a little mysterious there. The Jews didn't get it. And here in the New Testament, the mystery has been revealed. This good news of the gospel is for all people, not just Jews. It's for the Gentiles. Why is that so awesome? Because you're a Gentile. That's why. (laughs) Because it came to you through Paul's ministry. That's the mystery of the gospel. And Paul said, that he was a steward of the gospel. We are stewards of the gospel, church. When God saves you, through the hearing and the preaching of the gospel message, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, immediately, instantaneously, after you believe, he then entrusts you and makes you a steward over that gospel Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul's point is, is, is you're saved. Yeah, you get to go to heaven. Yes, you have life in Christ. But he's given you this message of the gospel. He's he's approved you, that he's entrusted you to do much with it, to be a steward of it, to tell all the people in your life about the good news of Jesus. How are you stewarding the gospel today? He's given it to you. Are you hoarding it? For yourself, never told anybody about Jesus. Like you're just good. I'm in. That's a gospel hoarder. Is what that is. Hoarder has a negative connotation. In case you didn't figure that out. Are you Are you keeping it for your own family? Man, as long as my me and my kids get into heaven, all good. I don't need to go tell anybody else. That's also a gospel hoarder. He's given us the gospel not to be stingy with it, but to share it so other people might find life in Christ. Now, we're also stewards of the church, stewards of the gospel, but we're also stewards of the church. Look at verse 28 again. Paul said, Him we proclaim... Warning everyone, teaching everyone, proclaiming Jesus that we may present everyone mature in Jesus. He's talking about the ministry inside the church. In here, you, I have this ministry in the church. And he gives us these things that we do with one another. Teaching. Teaching is the, it's the encouraging or positive instruction. Like taking the word of God, making it fully known, and just teaching other people what you know about the Bible. Teaching them, admonishing them, encouraging them, giving them instruction. This is what God's word says about this, and this is what God's... It's a good, good instruction of the scriptures. But, but Paul doesn't just say he teaches them... It also says that he warns them that we are to warn people. I think that's, that's a lost thing in the church. I think uh, we got a taste of the hellfire brimstone church back in the 80s, 90s, whatever, and people are like, ugh, stop warning me. I mean, God, we get it, hell. But here, Paul kind of confronts us here and says, warn people. Do you warn anyone here in the church? You ever seen a friend who's about to make a horrible, horrible decision that you know is just sinful? You go to them and warn them? Or do you just pray for them in your life group? Man, I see sometimes people posting sinful stuff on social media. And not only are people not warning them, they're liking the stuff. If you love people who are in danger, what do you do? You warn them. You warn them. That's what you do. And, of course, in love. But you warn them. These are things that we do in our stewardship of the church. Teaching, warning, encouraging. Of course, this goes into a bit of my job description as well here. Paul is listing out a lot of those things. My job, primary job of a pastor, is to proclaim God's word to God's people. It's the number one task of a pastor to present the people of God fully mature in Christ so that the fullness of God might be known amongst you. That is what I'm held to. Always hold me to that end. Always, always, always. Presenting people mature in Christ. Luther said this, God's people will not be God's people without God's word. fundamental principle here. We have to have the Word of God in us, and that is my primary responsibility. But again, it doesn't just fall upon me. It falls on the entirety of the church. So let me, as we steward these things, let me ask you a question, because there is some application in here. Can you share your testimony? Could you get up and say, hey, this is my life before Christ, and how it happened and now here's my life because could you confidently get up and tell a testimony that is not a selfie testimony but is a testimony that points to the hero of Christ? Can you, could you confidently get up and just share the gospel with someone in your life group tonight? Here's the gospel. Could you point and counsel someone in the scripture to have the confidence to go to them and warn them about something that they're getting ready to do and give a defense of why? These are things that we're all called to do, to be mature in Christ. And so that's why that discipleship thing is such an important piece to the church. And what we're going to be doing is that's where maturity happens. Maturity will not happen by you having really good attendance on Sunday here. I love the fact that you're here. We do grow A piece here, this is great, but it's going to happen in smaller groups and spaces of discipleship. We are stewards of the gospel, we are stewards of the church. Last piece here is this, and here's the idea, flowing through, um, suffering for the gospel in the church, stewarding the gospel for the church. You know what that is? That's hard. That is a really, really hard thing to do where does that strength come from to accomplish those things last po- point is this we need the strength for the gospel and for the church look at verse 29 for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully Works within me. Everything we do for the sake of the gospel and the church, suffering and stewarding for the gospel and the church, that is a very, very difficult thing to do, as I said. That's why Paul says that he toiled, that he labored, that he struggled. These words that Paul uses here is communicating exhaustion to us. No one ever accused Paul of being a lazy Christian. Let's just be honest. No one ever uh, said that he wasn't laboring. This is a, again, this is a part of his defense here. And, um, and he's saying how hard he, he worked but it was very hard. It was very tasking on Paul. This is why this is such good news here. In 29, he says that, that Christ is working in him. It is Christ's strength that is sustaining Paul's ministry. Paul is saying it's not his strength of how he's able to do all of those things. And this is why Paul didn't have ministry burnout. And ministry bail out. You know that language today where people are, oh man, I burned out on ministry. Pastors are dropping left and right in the church. Burn out. Burn out. I'm just burned out. I'm taking a season. I'm going to leave the ministry that God's called me to do because I'm burnt out. You know, people who burn out in ministry, it's because they are relying on their own strength to do the ministry. There are a bunch of Marthas in the church running around looking busy in church and that gets really tiring, doesn't it? It's the the Marys that sit down at the feet of Jesus who absorb and receive the strength of Christ and then go out and then they do the ministry they toil they struggle they labor but it is a foreign strength it's an alien strength that we can accomplish this ministry it doesn't come from us it comes from Christ some of you are here and when you see Paul use that language toiling and struggling and some of you here you're in the ministry you do, man. I'm looking out right now and I see people who lead life groups, who lead discipleship groups, who care and lead children in the kids' area, that ministry, student ministry. I see a lot of laboring of people a lot in the ministry. And when you see that, you're like, toiling, struggling, exhaustion. That's me, right? It, we're all there. I've got to do this, I've got to step into this drama and this conflict, and I've got to show up on this night, and I'm so tired, I'm working, I'm trying to juggle and do all these things. I'm exhausted, I'm struggling, I'm toiling, I'm tempted to bail out on this whole thing. I just can't do this anymore. He who has called you into ministry will supply the strength that you need to continue in the ministry. It is Christ's strength. That supplies us. And it requires supernatural divine strength, doesn't it? You know what doesn't require supernatural divine strength? Staying at home, worshiping at the church of couch on Sunday morning. Letting the kids keep their jammies on and just cuddle up. Let's watch the TV and worship. That doesn't require supernatural strength. Doesn't really require supernatural strength to come to a church and sit in a seat and listen to a sermon. Unbelievers all over the world do that all the time. Just a building. Doesn't really require supernatural Christ strength to look busy in the church. Doesn't require supernatural strength to wear a cross. It requires. Supernatural strength to bear your cross, but not to wear one. Doesn't take supernatural strength to stay quiet about Jesus and blush about the gospel at work. Doesn't take any strength for that. Doesn't take any strength to not disciple your children at home. No power needed to run from conflict when you have some drama in your group, you just run. No strength necessary for that. No strength required if you are never going to say someone who is a loved one or a family member who's in the LGBTQ community that what they're doing is, is wrong and that you want to warn them in love. It doesn't. If you just stay silent, that doesn't take Supernatural strength. That's the easy thing to do is just to be quiet. Do you know what takes supernatural divine strength from Christ? Speaking truth in love to that person. Discipling your children when you're exhausted. Leading a discipleship group. Correcting, teaching, warning other people. Serving in student ministry. Serving in kids ministry. That all requires supernatural divine strength. I say that because lazy Christians will never accomplish the Great Commission. And there are too many people, and I'm looking, listen, I'm saying this in love, I promise you, I'm not angry. There are too many people who come here and you're lazy Christians because you're not doing ministry. Just go to church. It's easy to do that. But the calling of Christ that he's put on your life is a hard one. It's a happy life. And he's inviting you in, not just to beat you over the head to say, do ministry, though no, he's inviting you into something greater than you're actually experiencing right now. There's nothing more joyful than to do happy, hard ministry. And if you're in ministry, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. You show up at your group on Wednesday night like, I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. I don't want to hear this crap anymore. And then you show up and you leave and you're full of joy. That's ministry. That's ministry. The band's going to come up. We're going to get ready to worship here in just a moment. We do a lot of things in this world, church. We, we have a lot of responsibilities. We, we have jobs as, as neighbors co- working in, the, in, in whatever field that you work in, raising children, marriage. We have a lot of things that we're called to do in this world, and they're very tasking and toiling things. But nothing is more important than stewarding the gospel and stewarding for the church. This is the highest calling of all things but Christ will supply the strength that you need today. I want you to remember that. The last thing I'm going to say is this. Some of you are here today and you need Christ's strength more than you know it. And the reason I say that is because some of you might be here today, you're trying to work your way to God with your own strength. You are trying to Go to church. Do more quiet times. Read your Bible more. Do more good deeds in the community. Trying to serve. Maybe to try to get baptized. You're trying to do a lot of things in the hopes that you, by your strength, would work your way to having favor with God. And I just want to lovingly tell you here today, you, you, you don't have enough strength in you to do it. This is a supernatural strength. It comes from Christ. Christ's strength is what raises people from the dead. And you today, you need the strength of Christ to save you. Not to do ministry, but just to save you. So if you're someone today, you want To experience the power of God by saving you, forgiving you of your sins. Life in Jesus, abundant and eternal right now, and this invitation into this happy, hard life. Man, would you come and talk to us today and receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior and your good Lord? Come talk to us today. Fill out one of the blue cards. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Again, you have painted such a portrait today of your servant, Paul, of a ministry that we can not only look at and appreciate and love Paul for it, but God, a ministry that, that, that our lives should be reflective of us. Thank you for inviting people like us, unqualified for ministry, into everything that we do for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the church thank you for Christ in his name we pray